Welcome back to the Compass live stream, uh, the best uh, and only live stream dedicated to proof of work mining. Um, we're glad you're watching again with us this afternoon. We have three amazing guests um, who I'll introduce in just a minute here, but as always, glad to have my co-host Will on the live stream with us. Will, thanks for coming on uh, for another conversation. I'm probably more excited for this one than most of the other ones we've had, uh, not to dig at any of our prior guests, but this one should be very entertaining and a lot of fun. So thanks for coming on with me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for putting this together. I'm really looking forward to it as well. I think this kind of hits your interest perfectly with Bitcoin mining and trading. So great assembly. Yeah, Bitcoin mining is uh, has been over the past several months taken a, a more prominent position in sort of market movements and market news than it has uh, in most other times uh, throughout this market's short history. Um, and to talk about a bunch of different aspects uh, of that. We have Karim from Galaxy Digital, Josh from The Tie, and Sam from Alameda Research. Uh, it's all three of you. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Will and I have a ton of respect and enjoy all sorts of hot takes from y'all on Twitter. Um, so we're pretty pumped to have you all on here to talk about mining and the market with us. Um, I kind of want to set the stage for the conversation uh, which I think may be a little bit of a spicy one uh, with a very broad, open-ended question. And that question is is simply this. Is there is there any sort of alpha uh, that anyone looking at this market can, can squeeze out of, um, like mining on-chain data and maybe mining news a little bit more generally? Um, and also just like on-chain data in general, we see all over Twitter, all sorts of uh, two, three, four-letter acronyms for um, on-chain data derived measures and metrics that people use to try and interpret market movements in our industry. Um, are they useful at all for, for anything? Um, and, and if not, uh, why not? Uh, Karim, I'm going to throw it to you first and then we'll, we'll go around. Awesome. Um, thanks, Zach. Yeah. So, uh, I'm Karim. I work at, uh, the research team at Galaxy Digital. Um, my, my broad hot take is that um, most on-chain data does not have a ton of value, um, at least in, in direct trading applications, but um, you know, it can still tell us a lot about like the health of the network and stuff like that. So. Josh, same question to you. Uh, I know you all deal with a lot of uh, funds, um, selling them all sorts of different uh, data products. Um, and I mean, I've used the tie personally, it's an amazing product. Um, any any utility there at all? We see all these metrics thrown around everywhere. What's the utility there, if any? I mean, I think there's a difference between mining data and on-chain data broadly uh, in different types of on-chain data. Um, I can tell you that broadly speaking, most funds are not using on-chain data to trade. There are exceptions, and there are certainly funds that have found ways to make money using it. Generally, if you're making money using something, you shouldn't tell other people how you're making money using it. And so I've heard from a few funds some bigger funds, some of the biggest prop trading firms, you know, in the world, you know, five, $10 billion prop funds, you know, traditional that have been running their own infrastructure, that they have strategies that are using on-chain data. I think the things that are broadly more interesting are things that are just, I guess, can be thought of as being similar to equity markets. And so like, I think of, of, of looking at things like developer activity selling or insider trading in markets are interesting just to like understand you know, hey, what what activity is going on, right? If we're looking at X or Y or Z asset, you know, are the developers selling out of those assets? Are early holders selling out of those assets? I think things like that are interesting. You know, I think some of these these broader metrics or these longer term metrics that you know kind of get thrown out on Twitter that look like a bunch of rainbows. You know, I don't know how much utility there necessarily is there. I mean, I think 
you know, across any type of data, I think there's a misconception that like, like people just look at the stock to flow model as being this perfect thing, but like across all of data, I think, I think it's, you know, you have to look at, at data together. I think data as a standalone is very difficult. So I think on-chain data becomes a lot more interesting when you combine it with things like, you know, market data and sentiment data and news and all these other metrics to kind of craft a, a much bigger and broader narrative. And I think there's some, you know, systematic models that you can, you can build on that front that are interesting. Well, speaking of funds who may or may not use on-chain data, Sam, also want to give you the same question. Uh, pretty much everyone uh, obviously knows of Alameda. Um, and so I'm super curious to know your answer to the same question. Any like any utility there at all? And as I'm sure you obviously looked at a bunch of these metrics that people like simple on-chain data and a bunch of metrics derived from it. Um, like generally speaking, how much utility, if any, have you found there? Uh, yeah, so we spent a uh, like decent amount of time looking into this kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, for the most part, we find that it's uh, there, there are like sparing examples, uh, uh, there are sparing exceptions to this, but for the most part, it's uh, basically useless to us uh, from a from the perspective of like trying to predict sh prices either short or long term. Uh, like people talk about this stuff on Twitter like quite a bit, uh, like other uh, like the other guys have mentioned, uh, where like you'll see like oh like people like reading into like oh like look at this transfer like this means this is gonna happen, uh, like things like that and things like that are like. Uh, that like very very often misinterpreted uh because like i mentioned there are some ex exceptions to the fact that like this stuff doesn't really help you that much and like that's less true that there legitimately do exist exceptions like uh, uh if you see like a transfer from a wallet to another wallet and like consistently uh like uh like every time we've seen that exact transfer between those two wallets there's been predictable price movement uh then sometimes you can predict like oh that means that there's like some person who has a bunch of it and they're selling it and maybe you know more, something more specific, but like that's the that's the kind of exception that does that can exist. Uh, the kinds of things people talk about on Twitter are not the exception, uh, and uh, in general, people are also like, in addition to most of the information not being helpful in, in an inherent way, uh, people are like uh, bad at interpreting it for the most part. Uh, like some something that I get tagged about a lot on Twitter uh, is like, oh, like, look at all this tether movement. Like, this means that someone's minting tether in order to buy Bitcoin. Uh, but it's actually just sort of like often the opposite, uh, it turns out, uh, because the only reason anyone's buying, like, the, the, the only time anyone ever mints a lot of tether uh, is when tether is trading rich. Uh, and tether ends up trading rich when someone's selling Bitcoin against tether. Uh, and that's like the only thing that's going on there. Like if when Alameda mints Tether to take advantage of that ARB, we're generally going to have to also sell Bitcoin in order to generate dollars to pay for the Tether. Uh, so it, it ends up being like a delta neutral thing. Uh, and yeah, so like people are very uh, excited about making like bad interpretations of on-chain data uh, in a way that makes makes me basically think that most almost most people should just not even ever think about it. Uh, and I think that there is like there are few few times when really anyone should be trying to think about it when trying to make price movement, make price predictions. I, I think there are probably some novel things that haven't been explored yet or that are in their early stages or, or more nascent stages of being explored. I mean, you look at, you know, questionability on 13F filings in equity markets, how accurate they actually are, right? The 13F is when you know, a fund, you know, will disclose that they have a position in, in some asset and that's a point in time representation. But, you know, I think, you know, if you look at, you know, you know, big wallet address addresses now going into really small assets, right? You know, that, that, and, and you see that consistently, right? So let's say you see 
four or five mega large, you know, addresses that have historically found interesting projects earlier, those projects have, have performed well. I think there are patterns that you can start to detect and find there. But, but again, I think to Sam's point is it's not that simple. Uh, and it's not just those simple metrics, right? I think it's a, a matter of what you can find. And I think there's a lot of novel things that haven't really been explored that much yet where there will be alpha there. And I think as well, like the thing to note about a lot of these wallet address labeling things is like, you know, I've talked to a lot of the big OTC desks and big players in the space that have just taken their clients' wallet addresses and run them against a lot of these labeling. And certainly some of them are somewhat accurate, but in a lot of times, you know, maybe you're talking about one of the 20 wallet addresses that this fund has, and maybe the wallet address that's labeled is 1% of the fund's assets, and they can mess with the market by moving around funds that are represent 1% of their assets, right? So I think you have to be careful with any of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I agree. Um, I, I kind of wanted to, sorry, Corinne, did you want to hop in there? Oh, no. <clears throat> Had a couple of points around like, so on Tether, on the interpretation side, like people also just completely miss that they mostly print Tethers ahead of time uh, and and then like add them to the treasury. And then from the treasury, there's the redemption aspect um, that people like completely gloss over. Uh, and so when there's a large Tether print, that's kind of in anticipation of future market demand. Uh, people automatically assume that something is happening. Um, on the other side, uh, like, yeah, I, I, I used to build these tagging engines for the wallets. Like, they all disagree with each other. They're, like, none of them are consistent. It just completely depends on, like, your initial seed source. And, and um, like, there's a lot of, like, low-quality information circulating around on that side, um, especially around, like, Bitcoin, where, where uh, you know, just having like one address can mean the difference between like merging two clusters and, and that can kind of like spiral out um, and, and lead to just like completely differing results. Uh, I think a really good example of this one was when there was the whole like drama around uh, flows from BlockFi to Gemini a few months ago. Um, in reality, Gemini is just what BlockFi uses as like the backend for, for their custody. Uh, and people were assumed that there was like a, a large market uh movement and and, and uh, I, I think there was a lot of a lot of hate flowing around around something that was just like a very silly simple misinterpretation cream if i can do a follow-up there so i don't want to steer the whole conversation uh at all into DeFi at all but it does seem just from like a generalist perspective that there is a lot of demand for on-chain analytics when it comes to DeFi trading so you have like parsec finance or nansen and you have the ability to just like look at wallets kind of interpret the space through through that kind of data very easily. Is that just kind of a like the, the wrong way for these uh, things to, to go about kind of analyzing the market itself? Should they be be looking at um, other other issues instead of just looking at on-chain data itself? Is that something that's going to grow out of uh, Furman's current state? Uh, I, I think like... Um... DeFi is one of those applications where it does actually kind of make sense uh, in large part because people are just like not very careful about privacy and they're leaving a lot of information out in the open and there's not a lot of people who can interpret it properly. So if you're like scoping out, say like um, a copy trading strategy or something on historically high performing addresses, that could be pretty useful. Um, but broadly, I mean, like, I think just generally like these aggregate market metrics across like different assets where you look at like, oh, you know, like, Soper is up or Soper is down and, and, you know, like, I don't know, some other like six letter acronym that's based around that is, um, is, is soaring. Uh, that, that tends to be like a poor indicator for, for what the actual um, 
state of the world is. Yeah. And I'm not hammering what, what, on super specifically. It's just the first one that popped up. <laughs> no, it's a good example. And I liked uh, Josh's description of, you know, you can pack as many letters into the names and almost as many colors into the charts for some of these on-chain visualizations. Um, and they, they are extremely popular on Twitter. Um, one, not so complex uh, in terms of naming, but one very popular dynamic in the market, shifting this a little bit back more towards mining, um, is uh, miners selling their coins. Um, people love uh, and have historically loved to blame big market movements occasionally on on miners uh, selling. Um, and I'm curious to know all your all's thoughts on basically like, is this even like I've written on this before and I have lots of personal opinions, but um, unfortunately I'm the one asking the questions here. Um, do do like miners move the market at all as uh, all three of you have sort of watched the market from different perspectives? Um, is this, you know, re reoccurring narrative that miners are crashing the market, miners are selling their coins? Is this something to actually observe and that can be used to explain uh, market movements? Um, and I'm going to hand it back to you uh, and then we'll go around. Um, yeah, so uh, this is another one of the metrics that I worked on a lot, right, was uh, minor flows on, on Bitcoin um, and then and then later a little bit on ETH. Um, look, there are 900 Bitcoins a day that are mined, um, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Uh, that's just not enough to move the market in any meaningful sense. Um, so miners do have like some access to, to, you know, to Josh's point, like a degree of, I wouldn't call it inside information, but it's just like privileged information that other people like don't really have. Uh, by virtue of you know being being in these like circuits where they're they're you know like better connected and and you know maybe privy to some more uh, 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 forthcoming information that that might not not have happened. So I'm not saying that like they're not informed and that these metrics are completely useless, but saying that the miners are the ones that are like actually moving the market is just like very bizarre because it it completely lacks a sense of scale on the amount of money that miners control versus and especially on the amount of money that they're like constantly bringing in of which they're liquidating most of anyway because miners are you know usually selling to cover costs um compared to the actual like liquidity and size of the overall bitcoin market yeah for sure uh sam same question to you I i'm sure maybe to some extent you've monitored like minor flows um and there's maybe we can dig into this a little bit there's some intricacy and nuance there um but like how if at all do miners actually move the market uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I basically agree uh, that like in uh, like on short in short term, uh, yeah, in the short term, it's like this sort of hard for the quantities that we're talking about to have a real kind of impact uh, on the like on the markets. Uh, like volume, uh, like volume in the crypto markets uh, has gotten like quite high uh, over the past year uh, to the point where like yeah, like selling on the order of a few hundred Bitcoin or whatever uh, is just like just sort of unlikely to have. Uh, have real impact, uh, especially when, in general, uh, this isn't always the case. Uh, but in general, uh, miners uh, have uh, have setups with like various OTC defs, uh, which uh, was sort sort of enable the impact to be uh, like realized over like a, like a, a, an entire day or something like that. Uh, and basically, anyone who has a setup which isn't just like oh like, I'm going to send a market order, uh, it just isn't going to have significant impact. Uh, and even the market orders will only have like very short-term impact uh, and it will sort of bounce back. Um, uh, that said, uh, like over a long period of time, uh, given that like the, the flow from miners is like one directional uh, and this is, this is the kind of thing that's sort of hard to uh, hard to measure out uh, as being like a, and attributed specifically to, to one source. 
but over time, the net impact uh, is selling like a decent amount of Bitcoin. Uh, and so like it's fairly likely that like in, over the course of a year or something, uh, the uh, the impact of, of like miners selling it like adds up to a few percent or something like that. Uh, but uh, that's not something that you can like point to like on a given day and say, like, oh, this sell-off was because of minor selling. Uh, that, 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 that's in general just never going to be true. Uh, the, the impact is realized over a much longer period of time. Josh, I want to hand the same question to you, but change it a little bit or at least get a second thought on it. Uh, we've always seen in the news and media that miners are often blamed for large market uh, adjustments of price. And I'm wondering why, based on Kareem's and Sam's answers there, why that happens? Like, why are they an easy target if it's so simple to look at the the numbers and be like, miners aren't adjusting prices that much? Um, I mean, I guess this is not the best answer, but I'd say journalists aren't data scientists. Um, and they're looking for easy things to point fingers at. I mean, I, I agree with them entirely. Uh, you know, I think some miners try to be speculators. Um, and I think those are very different skill sets, right? Mining and, and trading and investing are very different, very different in nature. I mean, you know, hypothetically, a miner should be somebody who's mining and then selling out of their position, right? The second that a miner decides to hold their Bitcoin, they'd become a speculator and they become, you know, somebody who's trying to invest. Um, and maybe they try to, you know, time the market more. And, you know, maybe if they're, they're you know, if, if hash rate is low and they're mining at a really large profit because Bitcoin price is high, maybe the impact can be slightly more. Um, but again, I think it's just an, an easy target, an easy narrative. And it's nice to show a chart and to show one thing on a chart, but correlation does not mean causation. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I agree with these guys entirely. I mean, you know, you're talking $45 million a day in selling pressure. I mean, it's you know completely negligible at this point. I mean, new institutions are coming in every single day and buying more than forty-five million dollars of the Bitcoin. So, yeah, people also read these metrics like completely wrong. Like the all the charts that circulate on Twitter are of like pool payouts, <laughs> just to to the miners. So yeah, it's 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 kind of just a silly uh, rabbit hole, I think, more than anything. Kareem, that might be a good time. Could you explain zero hop versus one hop? briefly just for the chat. I think that might be helpful. Yeah. Methodology explainer. Um, totally. Yeah. So, so, uh, like I mentioned the, the, a lot of the metrics that circulate are kind of just like of pools paying miners or of pools paying like, you know, other bills that they have. Um, the problem is that a lot of people are looking at, um, the, the first degree payments from the Coinbase. So, uh, in reality, the workflow typically just goes from the mining pool receives funds, pays the miner, and then the miner is the one who actually like, you know, is, is doing the work and has to sell to cover most of their costs and stuff like that. Pools typically only keep about 2%. They're not major market players. They do have to make a lot of transfers um, just to, you know, to pay out their participants. Um, and yeah, a lot of the a lot of the metrics that circulate are actually tracking pools when they need to track miners and, and um, as a result are, are pretty misrepresentative. Uh, so one of the the tools that I built while I was at Coinmetrics was um, around tracking the actual one hop flows. So seeing every address that has received a payout from uh, something that we've tagged as a mining pool address, which is one that's received a, a Coinbase payout, um, and then tracking the flows in and out of those. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's kind of just like, it, it's similarly not, it hasn't been an amazing market predictor, right? And we never really marketed it as one, to, to be clear. Like, we've always thought that this was like, if anything, just a way to bust the mining FUD. Um, there have been a couple of times where we've seen like 
peaks in minor selling. Uh, one of them was around the China ban. That was by far the most notable one, uh, where they sold into the middle of the the market sell off um, following like the the Chinese restriction announcement. Um, but it's very hard to pin like the overall market movements on miners in any meaningful capacity. And it's just like, look like they were selling, but so was everyone else. So it's funny you mentioned, uh, sorry, Sam, did you want to hop in there? Oh uh, yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, I agree that the way to interpret uh, like miners selling a bunch of Bitcoin when uh, when China like made their announcement about mining. Uh, yeah, that, that's like, I, I, I think it's like a wrong to frame it as, yeah, this is exactly what Kareem ended up saying, uh, but it's wrong to frame it as minor selling. It's that was just a part of that was just like people who have Bitcoin reacting to uh, reacting to news that the entire world perceived as sort of negative for Bitcoin. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I I basically think that that shouldn't be seen as like not any anything out of the ordinary in terms of like miners uh, being blamed or whatever. If anything, it sort of suggests that miners typically didn't sell because they had a bunch of Bitcoin to sell when something came up. Uh, which is almost saying the opposite. <laughs> so I, I kind of wanted to touch on China a little bit in this conversation. So it's it's cool we're like there at this point now because there's like a bunch of different <clears throat> potential ways to interpret that scenario, right? Where like we sort of just talked about, you can sort of pin it on miners um, and, and certainly the, the mining related news coming out of China uh, that triggered the, the sell-off there. Um, there's a couple questions I have though, and I'm not sure exactly the best way to frame this question, but like long-term, I think th there's wide consensus that the news from China isn't like bearish for Bitcoin. Like it, it scatters hash rate across the world, decentralizes mining to a very significant degree, more so than we've seen throughout the history of Bitcoin. Uh, but the crackdown news itself uh, in, in like mid-May uh, really spooked everyone. Uh, and I'm sure there was some miners selling Bitcoins um, along with everyone else selling a bunch of coins and other assets. Um, like why, I guess, <laughs> not to make this more complicated than it needs to be, but like, why was that news, uh, or was it just coincidental, I guess, that the market kind of topped, maybe things got a little overheated and the sell-off just happened to coincide with the news coming out of China, um, or was like mining actually, you know, a key catalyst for the huge market crash we saw, uh, end of May into June, um, and kind of took a good chunk of the summer there to, to recover from, uh, Sam, I'll hand it back to you. Like how much, like would you actually pin on mining versus just like coincidental and everyone got spooked? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the, uh, like the world sort of interpreted the news as negative. Uh, like I think the crypto world is not like, like especially efficient at interpreting news, especially as it relates to price movements. Um, but like, yeah, I think it was uh, like sentiment on the, like in the immediate, immediate aftermath of this news coming out, I uh, was fairly negative. Um, and I think so. I think that triggered like the initial parts of the sell-off. Uh, I don't think that it, uh, th th that specific uh, uh, that that impetus was exactly responsible for the entire sell-off. Uh, there was there were like other scattered pieces of like mildly negative news, um, which sort of triggered again this, like this organic sell-off. Uh, and I think a lot of the a lot of the momentum that the market uh, sort of uh, that we saw the market have was not even due to any of this. It was just due to market structure causing a bunch of liquidations once the market had fallen a little bit. Uh, uh, like we were sort of in a very specific situation where there had just been uh, like the big rally to like 65 and it had like fallen off a bit from there uh, because of like whatever you want to say uh, started falling because of I do think the Chinese the China mining news was part of that um, but yeah there was like and so like there were and that the rally up to 65 was driven uh, a ton by really high leverage 
Uh, you can sort of measure this by like seeing where the inflows were. They were like largely on the Binance Bitcoin perps, uh, which were at a huge premium uh, and also which let people get really high leverage. Uh, and so when, when things started falling off, uh, like a ton of the people who got long on these contracts got liquidated a lot. Uh, and that's, that's what drove most of the, most of the crash, honestly. Um, and so I do think that the, like the, the news coming out of China was part of the initial, initial drop. I don't think blame, I don't think that like miners sold off in a disproportionate way in particular, um, like I said before, um, so yeah, I think I think that's basically what happened, and I don't think I I, I saw a bunch of stories about how like all oh, like the miners are selling is like causing all of this, and that that was just never true. Josh, uh, same question to you. Like, I mean, you look at a whole bunch of different stuff and serve this data and news to clients. Uh, like, how much of this are we as miners, you know, to blame for? Um, and like, why was this perceived as such like a, a bearish catalyst there, or was there you know a basket of a whole bunch of other catalysts that kind of compounded? along with China's mining ban to create the sell-off we saw? I don't think that the the fact that it was mining was what mattered. I think it was more that it was a ban or crackdown from China broadly on crypto. I don't think it matters what it was specifically. And you know, because it was mining, I guess the finger gets pointed at miners. But we also had all that negative news, you know, the the Elon Musk uh, you know, on, on saying Bitcoin is uh, you know, not, I guess this is also a mining issue where it's not energy efficient. It's not ESG. It's not clean, which is just such fucking bullshit. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, but, but I, I look in, in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, we, we were at a point where the market was overheated, right? We were kind of, you know, once the market gets overheated, right. You know, a piece of negative news comes out, the market starts to slow down a little bit. It starts to correct. And, I'm not going to add anything novel that Sam didn't already say. I was going to say the same thing, cascading liquidations, right? It seems to be the same story over and over again, right? Where you, when you're, you, when you're in a, when you're, it, it, it's, it's the dumbest point to make, but when you're in a down market, negative news has a giant impact. When you're in up market, positive news has a giant impact, right? So, you know, we've seen, broadly speaking, it's kind of just a random interesting fact that when exchanges announce a lot of listings, there's a lot of updates from projects that tends to be you know, a period of time where altcoins were outperform. When that's not happening, Bitcoin tends to outperform. Maybe correlation, maybe causation. You know, whatever else. But we're at a point in time where there wasn't much coming going on in the market. Had some negative news. You know, had the Elon Musk thing. Had the miner thing. I don't think it's anything specific to miners, though. I think it's just negative regulatory news has a big impact on the market, especially. And I think that's especially going to be the case as more traditional institutions come into the space because the traditional institution is not looking at a hodl wave. They're looking at regulatory rulings in real time. Kareem, I'm going to ask you kind of an unfair question. At what point does the market stop reacting to China bet FUD? Like, when does that end? Like, we had the Bitcoin mining stuff. We've had exchanges just being cracked down for years. We've had China ban Bitcoin all the time. Market still reacts every time. Do you think there's a point where this news stops shaking the market in the sense that it has beforehand? It's not this time. <laughs> I, I I don't know when we're gonna hit it, but there's still liquidity on the Chinese exchanges, so it's still gonna you know like impact the market. Um, and you know like that's changing. The the dynamic is 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 adjusting. And I it, this time was funny because it was like the first time that it was you know China actually kind of bans Bitcoin uh, in any in any sort of like meaningful sense, at least like on in the, in the mining side of things. Um, but uh, yeah, I think like negative news is still gonna hit the market. <laughs> So, something yeah, to add on, on the, 
on the Asia thing, if you look over the last two weeks, this entire market movement has been driven by US hour trading. I mean, if you look across the board at every sector in the market, whether it's privacy coins, you know, Web3 payments, whatever else, you know, broadly speaking, over the last two weeks, we've seen an average rise of like 15 to 20% across all sectors during US hours. And we're seeing basically zero impact on the market during Asian hours. I mean, literally like zero, uh, which is something interesting just to kind of add on and note there as well. Um, and so I wonder if FUD makes a difference if Asia is not moving the market anymore. Sam, I kind of want to give you that same question because I know I, I love watching your interviews uh, just as an aside. And you've talked about previously, or maybe this was on the panel at a conference, I can't remember, um, but about the Elon thing, like his tweets obviously went from moving the market, you know, quite a bit to that effect kind of dissipating quite a bit over the past uh, or the last several weeks, couple months. Um, do you see like a similar effect ever being true of like China ban news um, in terms of how it affects the market? Or is that like a completely different catalyst in its own category? Uh, yeah, uh, so I think that the you know, Elon thing was uh, interesting uh, and was a bit unique, but uh, on some level did represent the same kind of the same kind of evolution that uh, we've seen like a bunch of times in uh, in this market. Uh, and yeah, just to describe that, uh, so yeah, initially when Elon started tweeting, uh, like his first couple of tweets were uh, something along the lines of like, oh, like Tesla's going to buy Bitcoin, like, uh, and then he started doing his Doge thing, uh, and it would have this like giant impact. Uh, yeah, I don't know if people remember the first time uh, he tweeted about Bitcoin specifically, uh, but Bitcoin went up like 10% uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of that tweet. And then over the hours following that, went down 10%. <laughs> uh, and this is the kind of thing where the market sees that and is like, huh, like the, uh, like, Obviously, like people's initial reaction is like, "Oh, this is this is cool. This is good. Uh, this means not only this mean does this mean like, oh, like Tesla either has bought or will buy Bitcoin, uh, but like this is the first time we've seen we've seen like the CEO of, like a company like this make make a claim like this. Uh, this like maybe this means like a third of all of the big companies are going to buy Bitcoin, and that that would actually be legitimately quite big for Bitcoin. Um, uh, and so like that's that's sort of what happens with the with the initial initial rally, uh, like. It's hard to explain why the entire rally uh, got eroded away, uh, but the market does see it and it's like, oh, okay, so like maybe this is the kind of news I shouldn't update really strongly on. Um, and so the next time there's a tweet like this, because like, like Elon like was like in a paradigm where he was like doing these tweets all the time, uh, like there was still like a, a small rally, uh, but it uh, like it was a lot smaller than ten percent, uh, even though it did like which I mean like you'd expect anyway because like it's not like there's a ton of new information every time he tweets. Um, but it also uh, got undone like a lot faster, uh, and that's just sort of exactly what you'd expect because like uh, a priori uh, before he's tweeted at all, uh, like there's uh, you have some expectation for like oh like what's 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 going to happen to the market when this happens. Um, uh, after after it's already happened once and gotten undone once, uh, the like the market should update pretty strongly to like what an Elon tweet means, and it did. Uh, it like didn't go up as much, and now it doesn't really move at all uh, for the most part. Uh, like that's not exactly true for doge uh, like doge had the same kind of evolution uh where it's uh the impact uh in, instead of getting fully undone it would only get partially undone uh and but, but the net impact has gotten smaller over time uh from each time he, he talks about it um and this is like yeah this is exactly what you expect uh every time uh the impact of one of these things is less uh the market will uh react and uh, make it even less the next time because like there's this sort of momentum in this in this kind of effect uh, and so that's what happened with Elon. Uh, I, and uh, this isn't like completely, uh, completely unique in terms of like how the market reacts to news. Uh, 
Uh, so in general, uh, if like there's like some class of like there's some class of events, uh, like that can be Elon, that can be like legitimate, more legitimate, like traditional type news. Um, if uh, if there's like a predictable effect uh, in the way the market reacts to it, like if maybe like oh like every time uh, the U.S. Uh, would mention like like regulating crypto, it would go down like like a percent and then recover like 80 bips over the next day. Uh, like that should just like the market should be able to figure that out. Sometimes it might be a little complicated and so like only so it happens a little more slowly. Uh, but like if like firms like Alameda, like any other quantitative firms uh, are existing and like running studies on this, noticing it, like looking at it all the time, uh, like there's like, and we know that if the market gets hit 1% on a piece of news, it's going to rally almost all the way back. We're going to buy very quickly uh, when it gets hit 1%. Uh, just because like if it's a predictable effect, we just know we're going to be able to do it. And so we want to beat the market. Uh, that means that the effect will have to happen faster over time uh, because it sort of gets arbed out, as we call it. Uh, but also like uh, and when it starts getting faster, the market will sort of realize, oh, we shouldn't be letting it have this much impact. Uh, and yeah, that's just like, I th expect that can happen uh, with the China news. And I think it has happened to some extent with the China news. Uh, China has had a, like a, there's been like a boy who cried wolf thing going on with China for a while uh, where they like, they, there's a version of them banning crypto that's happened like four or five times, um, if not a lot more. Um, and it, you, like, yeah, the market usually get crushed on this kind of thing. Uh, and I do not think it will get as crushed going forward. And I, again, I don't think that the, the crash in May was even fully, uh, fully due to this. Uh, there was the liquidation cascade moment based momentum that we talked about before. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, so I do think this will happen more uh, for, for China news. It's happened for Elon. It's happened for all kinds of things. And this isn't even just in crypto. This happens in traditional markets too. Yeah, for sure. No, I agree. Like, I agree with that. I just <laughs> definitely wanted to know your opinion on it as well. I kind of want to like dovetailing off of that, throw out an example piece of what I would consider kind of important on-chain data um, and tease out some opinions from all three of you as to whether or not you think it's you know, if there's any sort of market insight you can glean from it, whether it's uniquely bearish, bullish, or just completely irrelevant. Um, something that some miners have been looking at a little bit uh, more closely than usual over the past couple of months is uh, on-chain uh, activity. And as a corollary to that fee volume uh, for miners, specifically on Bitcoin. Um, and sort of from January to May, we saw even a little bit, a couple months before January, we saw a nice ramp up in terms of the percentage of total miner revenue that was represented by Bitcoin fees. And now, like if you visualize that on a linear chart, that has totally reverted. And last month, fees were barely one percent of total mining revenue. So miners are basically, you know, getting by on almost one hundred percent just the subsidy. Um, some of that you could pin on maybe like DeFi and NFT summer, but ultimately, there's just like no matter how you slice it, significantly less activity on Bitcoin. Um, with that sort of like very clean, cut and dry, no sort of derived metrics or anything, that very clean uh, data. Is, th is there any way to interpret uh, some sort of like market sentiment from that, whether it lags or leads, just like as a measure of where the market is now, um, given that, you know, significantly less people are actually using Bitcoin now relative to six, eight, 12 months ago. Uh, Karim, I want to toss it to you. I know you look at this data pretty frequently as well. Um, and then we'll, we'll go around like, how useful is that, if at all? Yeah, I, I, I like these. I think like um, I, I like looking at fees as a as a as a reasonable predictor for like how not predictor sorry like correlate to how people are feeling. Um, it, it literally is just demand to transact on chain, right? 
Um, so if there's low demand, that's just, you know, another supporting thing that maybe like, you know, the market's not feeling so hot. And, and, and I, I feel a bit more as like a, a supplement to your gut check on things than as a, oh, things are going to go up or things are going to go down. Um, I also feel the same way about like stablecoin supply broadly. Like I think tether supply generally increasing over a long term means people are feeling pretty okay about the market. And when it's, you know, decreasing for a while, that means probably not, not so, so hot. Um, so I, I just see all this stuff as like a way to, to, to kind of like supplement how your overall perception rather than like an actual, like we can trade on this in, in the micro immediately. Um, but yeah, these are, these are looking really rough right now still. So. Yeah, they are. No, I, I like that framing a lot. Sort of, I think all of Twitter should, should, uh, maybe listen to that clip use on chain data as like a supplement. Uh, piece of analysis, supplemental piece of analysis instead of, you know, a key indicator. Josh, I'm sure you look at this stuff too. Fees are looking pretty rough. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, is, is either right at or just above 50K as of this afternoon. But not a lot of people are, you know, using Bitcoin uh, based on transaction volume and uh, minor fee uh, volume. Like, how how do you read anything into that, if anything at all? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to me, that's kind of like water is wet. We kind of know that people aren't talking about or discussing or trading Bitcoin right now. Like it's if you've been following the market, if you've logged on to Twitter once, you kind of get that. I mean, I'm looking now at just Twitter activity today. I mean, you know, Bitcoin always, you know, historically represented like 50% of all conversations. I mean, today there's 82,000 Bitcoin tweets, which is still the most, but there's 67,000 Ethereum tweets, which is quite significant. Um, so uh, there's so many ways that you can find that data or come about that data could also mean that people are holding Bitcoin and it could be bullish, right? You know, there's different ways to, to approach it, right? Maybe people aren't transacting in their longer term holders, right? I mean, I think you can take that same data point and use it two different ways, right? You can say on one hand, oh, people have been holding Bitcoin for more than six months or more than a year, right? And maybe that's bullish because that means people are long term holders and there's less volume trading, changing hands. Or you can say, oh, that's negative you know, people aren't using the Bitcoin blockchain, right? And that's the same exact data point looked at in two vastly different ways. So I think it's a little bit hard to interpret that. And one comment, I guess, on uh, Sam's, what Sam mentioned on news, I know just distracting us for three seconds here. I think um, he's spot on with a lot of things. I think there's other examples that like micro strategy, right? Every time they went out and announced they bought something at first, it had a great impact. And then that kind of became muted over time. Um, and, and I think, you know, Sam speaks about systematically trading off some of that, that information, uh, you know, as somebody who provides that information to a lot of the largest quant funds and discretionary asset managers, you know, there are very few people in the entire world who are capable of systematically trading on news. It is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly difficult and granular. And there's all sorts of issues that you have with like topic modeling and knowing what is this news about? Is it the first time that it was announced, et cetera? Uh, and so I think that, with with news and trading off of news, the market is still very early and there's a tremendous amount of alpha to be had there. Uh, I don't think it's like, you know, you know, we're seeing in many cases when things come out from tokens, it's taking like two or three hours for the market to even have any sort of reaction to that information. Um, so I guess it depends on the source, right? I mean, there's things that people are broadly looking at like regulation and look, everyone can connect to the SEC's RSS feed or the CFTC's RSS feed and stay on top of that information. But there's a lot more kind of hidden behind the scenes. But broadly speaking, with with news that's being repetitive, like the Elon Musk thing and MicroStrategy, just over time, that that's just going to become more muted. 
Josh, I want to jump in there with a, a quick follow up on the news. Uh, just curious to know if this like particular type of news is even on your radar. Like public mining companies love to put out press releases about machines they buy um, and how many machines they bought, uh, the delivery schedule for them, the dollar value of these machines, all that sort of stuff. Is that type of news anything you follow at all? Like I'm sure probably there's some effect on like their particular uh, share price uh, within like, you know, 12 to 24 hours after those uh, releases are published. Um, I don't know if there's any, I haven't really looked if there's any effect on like crypto markets from that sort of news. Uh, any thoughts on like that type of mining specific news? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it now. We have it here. Like there's just, you know, you know, it's like via BTC or BitDeer or whatever, Bitmain, all these guys coming out and saying this stuff. I can tell you from usage among our users that no one is looking at it. Um, so if that means anything, that doesn't mean that there's no alpha there, but no one, the only people that we have looking at this news is other mining companies or VC funds that are looking at, or, or not even, even like a large traditional asset manager that's looking at investing in one of these publicly traded companies. I think something that's interesting to note is like at some point this year, and I, I, I think this was somebody from Foundry told me this, that like some of these publicly trading mining companies were trading at like 50 times the value of the future mining equipment that they hadn't even received yet. And so I think for trading, like trading public equities, it could be interesting, but I don't think it has any impact on the crypto market. Yeah, Sam, I want to get your take on both that news question that Josh has touched on. And then also kind of going back to Zach's original question about uh, transaction fees being a bullish or bearish indicator for demand to hold a certain asset. And I'm wondering just from Alameda's perspective, when you guys look at touching other coins and you look at, you know, fees on Ethereum obviously are up all over the place and miners are enjoying that, uh, but others aren't. Is that an indicator for you guys to go out and purchase that coin or take a position in it? Uh, or does it like really affect your mindset when it comes to Bitcoin versus other coins? Uh, yeah, so... I think that, uh, except in super extreme examples, uh, we haven't found this to be an especially uh, like an especially information laden indicator of anything. Uh, I do think uh, that said, there do exist some extreme examples. Uh, I think that, uh, for instance, like when uh, there's some like especially some second order things that can happen uh, in like I think probably like positive expected value ways, uh, like when when like news of like oh like the ether uh, transaction fees are like really high. Uh, when that starts dominating news, uh, I almost don't like. I I'm not aware of a strong effect on either that that has, uh, but I have seen that have uh, positive impacts on like other chains. I guess uh, when when the news starts being about oh ether is unusable for like X thing, uh, let's get Solana, uh, and like we have we have seen uh, we have seen like what 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 likely amounts to positive impact on on chains like Solana uh, from uh, like from the ether network being extremely clogged. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that I do think there like exists like like there exists ways to use that information in like in ways uh, that uh, can like make you money if you're good at good at interpreting it. And that's an important thing. You do have to be good at interpreting it. Like Alameda's been doing this forever, and I think we are pretty good at interpreting stuff like this. Um, which again, I've seen people screw like screw this up sometimes on Twitter. Uh, and uh, so I, I, it's important to like check yourself to make sure that like oh like uh, if I made similar predictions in the past, how would that have gone? Uh, and like even like tracking things like this uh, over time uh, can be can be a useful tool uh, in terms of like being confident about 
uh, about future bets that you're putting on because in general if you're more confident about something uh, you can afford to put it on bigger uh, you can feel better about doing that um and yeah so that's the kind of thing that i do think can be useful uh i wouldn't for instance like build a quantitative model uh that uh really use like the the ether uh, the e ether network fees uh as an input to what our price is for ether i think that would be quite hard to do uh and i'd be a little surprised if there were a way to do it that were like really good uh, but uh, I could be wrong. I haven't ex exactly checked that. It seems like a common theme here is that most people tweeting about on-chain data are, are probably wrong uh, at least 50% of the time, uh, which is, I mean, I don't disagree with that at all, but it's fun to hear it, you know, said unanimously and out loud. Um, there is, <clears throat> having said that, there is some on-chain data that uh, lots of people, or I guess small groups of people have tried to build actual derivative financial products around um, and I kind of want to shift gears into that uh, part of this a little bit. Um, some of those products have had shorter lifetimes than others, um, but there's a continual effort, specifically, I guess, around hash rate um, as like a commodity, uh, building products that people can trade that sort of uh, help the mining sector of the market and like the, the heavily traded, more financialized sectors of this market uh, merge between uh, the two of them. Um, and, and there's like there's been multiple iterations, right? And multiple kinks that have been tried to work out. I don't think the current uh, version of these types of products we have is by far, by any means, the final version. But it's interesting to see the development. Sam, I kind of want to hand it back to you because um, I know, or I assume that you all have traded some of these products. I know FTX listed them for a couple quarters there. Um, can you tell us just about the market dynamics there and maybe the utility and long-term potential, if any at all, you see for these sorts of uh, for lack of a better descriptor, like on-chain related derivative products? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so we were market making uh, the hash rate futures when FTX listed them. Um, and yeah, uh, there was very little volume uh, on them. Uh, and also the open interest uh, never got very high. Uh, I don't exactly know the uh, the process for like deciding like whether we should have the, this product or not going forward. Uh, but or for like for the, the process that FTX or like any other exchange has uh, when deciding like, oh, should we do this? Uh, but uh, I guess it's, it's kind of hard, like, uh, I, I can sort of see that the, the incentives probably don't exactly line up uh, for, uh, for all the parties involved for keeping this product alive. Um, so, like, the exchanges tend to, uh, like, they, uh, they basically probably just want volume. Like, their revenue tends to be based on volume. Uh, and uh, you can imagine that, like, the people who do a lot of volume, like Alameda, like, is a good example. Like, we don't... Uh, our models for the hash rate futures were not very good. Uh, we don't feel that we even like have a particular capacity to predict uh, like whether hash like what the hash rates are going to be. We were basically just mirroring someone like uh, some uh, like some website that was publishing information about them, uh, and we didn't like our, in general our models like tend to be like pretty good in, ter in terms of like uh, like like versus what our competitors would have. Uh, I cannot imagine that our hash rate futures were very good relative to what anyone else could have done. Um, and that's sort of just because like, we're not like, we're not really in this market. Uh, it's not something that we uh, have much exposure to or, or edge in talking about or thinking about. Uh, and I think that's probably just true for most people who are trading a lot of like volume traditionally on the crypto exchanges, uh, like being able to price Bitcoin and being able to price like the Bitcoin hash rate are completely different. Uh, and I think probably less related than a lot of people would think. Um, the people who do have incentive to be uh, exposed to these hash rate futures uh, are the people who like want to hedge their other exposure, uh, like the easiest thing to imagine is miners. Um, 
And they just don't tend to be the people who are doing a lot of volume on the crypto exchanges. Uh, and so I think that's sort of what we ended up seeing. Like the, the futures that got listed didn't trade at all. Uh, FTX no longer had incentive to have the market listed. Uh, and yeah, uh, I think that's sort of like kind of what you expect uh, when you think about who the players are here and what their incentives are. Uh, and yeah, I, I kind of think that the, uh, until uh, like until this gets like to the point where the the ecosystem in general is a little more like like it, until there are people who are it like in the market uh, like maybe traditional firms are the are the people who are going to end up filling this void uh, who like have experience trading like various commodities and things like that uh, like and who aren't just like trading the crypto markets uh, and like have this hash rate futures uh, market thrown thrust upon them which is like nothing like what they've done before. Uh, the, I think traditional firms might be a better a better fit for this. Uh, Alameda, I know, wasn't in particular. Josh, I want to hand this one to you. Uh, Karim, I know you've done a ton of work on hash rate products. I, I want to get to you in just a second. But Josh, is it like, is it possible for someone who isn't like, who isn't actually mining to have any sort of edge in these? Like, because we have like hash rate products that FTX launched before FTX. There were a couple different hash rate derivatives launched. We have a, a flurry of hash rate tokens that are sort of a different iteration on this. Do you think it's possible for anyone to actually have a real edge in trading these markets? Uh, I mean, there's no real like natural seller for that. Hash rate just kind of always goes up. Uh, I, what are your I, thoughts on this? I always looked at it as a hedge. So if you're a miner, you could use it as a hedge. Or if you're investing in mining stocks or anything else, using it as a hedge. I mean, to me, that was always the utility of it. Um, you know, maybe if you knew about the China Bitcoin crackdown, then you could make an informed decision, but you kind of would need to have some sort of privilege information, I would think, or, you know, maybe know something internally about, you know, or, or have like some information on like, for example, uh, wafers, which, you know, go into the production of mining equipment and knowing that, hey, actually, a ton of wafers are going to exist now, which, you know, impacts not just not just mining equipment, but but, you know, cell phone production and car production, right? We have, you know, cars aren't being produced because there aren't enough wafers too, right? Like, you know, same kind of thing. So if you had any information like that, I guess you could make an informed decision on, on, you know, hash rate futures. But I, I look at them as, as a way for miners to hedge their positions. But again, there are all these new things popping up. Like, you know, I know, I know, um, you know, Genesis and a ton of these other companies are working on, on structuring products for miners to help them hedge their risk, which aren't even, you know, hash rate future related. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Karim, same question to you. Could you maybe give us like a brief history, you know, of the different types of hash rate products you've seen develop over the past couple few years? Um, and then your thoughts on that, like that slice of the market generally, its usefulness, its its potential long-term, all that. Yeah. Um, all right. So super, super quick rundown. Um, most simple like hash rate product you can have is actually just like what pools offer. Uh, so just, uh, effectively a miner will contribute hash rate to the pool and the pool will like sell them back, uh, depending on the payment method, either the expected value of the amount of coins that they should have mined, or just the amount of work that they contributed to the coins that the pool actually did mine. Um, and then on top of that, there's also been like, um, hash rate rental marketplaces like nice hash. Um, those are also another way to commoditize hash rate, uh, and a few other approaches. Um, where I'll say all of these that I've mentioned have kind of differed from the exchange listed products that we've seen like FTX so far, uh, is that those are actual like instruments on the value of hash rate. 
as opposed to FDXs, which was a, an instrument on the network hash rate. Where this differs is that like, if you're a miner, an instrument on the network hash rate isn't a very good hedge. Um, it doesn't actually like address any of your issues because you're not exposed to like the value of hash rate and the network hash rate. What you're actually exposed to is like the amount of coins that you will be mining and and the price of Bitcoin. So um, if you want to hedge this out, like you want to know in dollars per tera hash per second per day, how much am I going to be making? Um, you don't you don't particularly want to hedge out like the the just the the network hash rate component of it individually. Uh, so to Josh's point, there are people working, and I, I've kind of like helped out a little bit on this as well uh, on like structuring instruments for miners to help uh, uh, hedge their risk to the price of Bitcoin just using like vanilla Bitcoin derivatives. Um, but the problem with the existing hash rate derivatives has largely just been that they're like not actually solving like the problem that miners have. Um, so in the future, what I'm kind of like looking forward to seeing is is instruments that like um, uh, derivatives on what like the Luxor guys and, and you know like the term that has kind of been popularized recently uh, call hash price, um, which is just like in dollars per tera hash per second per day, how much am I mining? Um, and I think those those have like a you know they, they probably won't be as liquid as as Bitcoin. they definitely won't be as liquid as Bitcoin derivatives. Um, but they kind of have a, a, a role to fill in like addressing that specific need. And um, you can physically deliver it just in the form of like actually like routing your hash rate to someone through something like a hash rate exchange. And uh, you can, you know, synthetically generate it uh, just by like constructing a contract that, that pays out according to, to hash rate. Um, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm quite uh, optimistic on the long-term potential of hash rate derivatives, even though there's been some missteps along the way. Kareem, I'm going to throw a question right back to you. Uh, wondering about why exchanges are getting into the pool game. I mean, obviously, there's been a few exchanges that have been in for quite a while, but like KuCoin just opened up one the other day. Uh, and of course, Binance has been in it for quite a while. Huobi's not letting go of it. OKX is not letting go of it, even though they've had a lot of problems with regulators in China and they've had to like uplift their entire business models. Uh, is it just so simple to be? on the pool front and it just makes sense for everything to be in one destination for miners. Is that why they kind of like add this aspect to their uh, business models? Yeah. I mean, it, it's the same as any other like um, uh, uh, business model, right? Like you want to own the customer. Um, you want to have just like the customer goes to one place. They don't want to deal with multiple parties. They don't want to, they don't want to have to interact with like an exchange that they're selling on and, you know, a prime broker and a mining pool, all of that. It's, it's just a better product for them. If it's, if it's one interface, um, and ultimately, you know, like pools aren't like, like everybody in the room, I think like is aware like pools aren't a big money maker. Um, right now, like fees on, on large miners um, are, are, you know, they're approaching zero. I've heard rumors of negative fees. Like it, it's, it's just not like a game you necessarily want to get into for the money that you're, you're generating from the pool, but, but it does function as a loss leader and it allows you to like generate trading volume and um, you can sell them financial products, uh, lending, all of that. Uh, and and having a pool is just like a really good way to make things easier, more convenient for them. You can offer it through the same interface. Sam, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, to date, I don't, or I'm not aware of FTX having uh, any pool connections, but Binance does. And just from my previous job at CoinDesk, being a reporter, I kind of saw like the rise of FTX and, and like the tailwinds of Binance. And now you guys are both kind of, competitors writ large, the kind of two biggest guys on the stage. Uh, 
but I don't see you guys have any pool connection. So maybe that's a correction um, and I don't know about it, but I'd be interested to know why if you guys don't have any pool connections. Uh, yeah, just to, uh, to be clear, uh, I'm, uh, so I work for uh, C uh, Alameda, uh, not FTX. Uh, FTX uh, they're, uh, yeah, they're both founded by uh, Sam Eckenfried, uh, but yeah, they're completely different. Uh, the, there's a, a, a quite robust Chinese wall between the two. Uh, and yeah, so I have no uh, access to what uh, the decision-making process is uh, for FTX. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, my understanding is the same as yours, which is that they don't have any pools uh, or pool connections uh, like Binance and the other exchanges have, uh, and I do not know why. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to misspeak there. Let's say Alameda, but appreciate the info. Awesome. Well, guys, we're about at time here. Um, I, I really appreciate you all uh, sharing your insights on a whole bunch of different uh, slices of on-chain data. It's utility, it's it's lack thereof. Um, it's been a super fun conversation for me based on chat and, and Twitter conversation. It seems like uh, it, everyone else has enjoyed it as well, which obviously is always the goal. Um, and hopefully, you know, maybe this will stem the tide of, of some of the, uh, the piss poor on-chain analysis we see all over Twitter uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Josh, Sam, Kareem, uh, thank you all so much for coming on the stream. It's been a ton of fun. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll, we'll see you all on Twitter, I guess. Thanks so much.